Here's what's coming today on the Woodworking Network podcast. Woodworking to me is jazz. Like, I'm never going to master it. I'm only just going to always be chasing it. Welcome to this episode of the Woodworking Network podcast. Join us as we explore the business of woodworking, big and small, and what it takes to succeed. I'm Will Sampson. Today's episode is sponsored by FDMC Magazine. Today our guest is Matt Buell, a successful custom wood wood furniture maker from Arkansas, previous 40 Under 40 honoree, and most recently the new host of our Young Wood Pro competition sponsored by Grizzly Industrial. We caught up with Matt earlier this year at the International Woodworking Fair in Atlanta. But first, I want to talk about learning to improvise. We talk a lot about creativity and craftsmanship, but there's a related skill that might be even more important to woodworkers, especially those just starting out in business. That's the ability to improvise, to turn on a dime, to change direction without hesitation. I once was told that what really sets a good woodworker apart is not that he doesn't make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. But the better woodworker is more skilled at fixing those mistakes. And the truly gifted woodworker knows how to capitalize on mistakes to make something even better. That's effective improvisation. Musicians who improvise are powered by the serendipity of discovering something new while playing off the riffs of other musicians. In the same way, woodworkers, especially those new to the craft, need to learn to expect the unexpected and thrive on it rather than fear it. You can't get enough good lumber in the species you want for your next project? Why not explore an entirely new species to you? You'll expand your knowledge, skills, and repertoire. Made a mistake in some joinery? How can you fix it or change the design so that it's even better than it was? Can a fix be a feature? Of course, not all mistakes can be remedied. If you need a piece to fit exactly into 24 inches and you cut it to 22 and a quarter, you'll likely have to replace the part while chanting measure twice, cut once. But think about how the mistake happened and see if you can institute a procedure to prevent it in the future. I know I made far fewer wrong cuts once I started using a tape measure that I could write measurements directly on. That way I didn't get confused about the number between taking the measurement and firing up the saw. Story sticks can sometimes help eliminate measuring errors. Some folks have better luck working in metric measurement than fractions. Whatever works for you. The point is to embrace the occasional hiccup as an opportunity for ingenuity and creativity. If you Google fixing woodworking mistakes, you'll find a host of YouTube videos and web pages devoted to solutions. Our Ask a Woodworker page on woodworkingnetwork.com is often filled with questions from people trying to solve woodworking problems. Gene Wengert, the wood doctor, is constantly answering questions from shops having trouble working with wood. Spoiler, the answer is almost always something to do with moisture content. 
With mistakes such a common occurrence, there's just no way you can avoid something going wrong. It's not the end of the world. Treat your next mistake as a golden opportunity to advance your craft and your business acumen. I want to get to our interview with Matt Buell, but first let's pause for a word from our sponsor. FDMC Magazine is your vital source for information to improve your woodworking business. Whether it's keeping you apprised of the latest advances in manufacturing, helping you solve your wood technology problems with Gene Wenger, or inspiring you with case histories about successful businesses and best practices, FDMC Magazine is there to be the sharpest business tool in your shop. Learn more and subscribe for free at woodworkingnetwork.com FDMC. Now let's get to our talk with Matt Buell at IWF. I'm Will Sampson from FDMC Magazine and the Woodworking Network. We are live here at IWF in the Woodworking Network booth for the Woodworking Network podcast. I'm Will Sampson from FDMC Magazine and Woodworking Network. And today I have as my guest, my old friend Matt Buell, who came all the way from Arkansas for this, this show. Matt, welcome to the Woodworking Network podcast. Yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Well, that's great. And Matt has been making uh, custom furniture for how long, Matt? Uh, about 11 years. 11 years. Full time. And what kind of furniture do you make? What, what kind of stuff? Um, usually my cute response is high-end furniture that costs more than I can afford or low-end if they're willing to pay high-end prices. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, um, a lot of one-offs, artisan stuff, uh, mid-century sometimes is, would be an influence, but not, I don't like the whole crossing into plagiarism thing. Um, but in all honesty, I'm a mercenary. I, I, I build what I'm paid to build. <laughs> but as far as some standardized pieces that I've developed over the years, um, they would fall more into contemporary design standards. Clean lines and, and that and sort of thing. a lot of, of sculptural thing. work. And, and honest joinery and, and yes. very high craftsmanship. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's no structural screws. That's rarely. great. That's great. Yeah. But also the sculptural stuff, I end up, that's probably half of the commissions that now come in. People ask me just to, you know, they just call and say, I want a dining table. And I, I said, what kind? They said, well, we just like the ones you make, so just make one. <laughs> that's great. It's great to have, have uh, uh, a... Uh, design repertoire that a customer base appreciates. It's, I'm grateful to have it. It didn't happen overnight. No, I'm yeah. sure it didn't. I'm sure it didn't. Now, we, we were talking uh, uh, before a little bit about how you do things and how the industry has changed and that sort of thing. When you come to a show like this, which there's everything at this show from hand tools to highly automated, crazy, huge machines. What are you looking at? What are you looking at, at at a show like this? I think that answer changes from year to year. Um, this year, my focus has been more on looking at hardware, um, different finishing products, and keeping an eye to see if the robots have gotten better at my job than me. <laughs> um, in some ways, yeah, but in other ways, no. Um, and they have their place. But for the most part, it's been hardware finishing and, and just trying to listen and learn. 
from people that have been, I've known for years or that have more experience than I do. You know, woodworking to me is jazz. Like, I'm never going to master it. I'm only just going to always be chasing it. So. I like that. Woodworking is jazz. That's, that's cool. Yeah, it's, you know, I think that what you're saying is, is a valuable lesson to folks uh, about coming to these big shows. You can get a lot of value out of these shows, even if you don't have a shopping list and are going to look at, you know, particular machinery or particular processes or things like that. I personally really like the serendipity of, of discovering something new and exciting that I didn't know about beforehand. And, and sometimes I'm embarrassed to say that it's technology that isn't like brand new, been around, but somehow has managed to slip past me. That happens. And I didn't know it existed. It's freeing and humbling at the same time. Like, I missed this. How did I miss this? Yeah, it was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think some of those kinds of discoveries and some of the smaller items can have just as big an impact on your business as some of the big discoveries. You know, finding, um, well, just the other day we were talking about uh, you using uh, domino joinery in, in some of your stuff. You know, when, when Festool came out with that kind of joinery, mm -hmm. that changed the way a lot of people work. Sure. It allowed them, I mean, I can make chairs in a time frame that's profitable. There you, you go. Know, and, you know, that's a big one because I love making chairs. You know, it was funny. When I was editor of Fine Woodworking almost 30 years ago, um, we used to, to say we didn't want to put a chair on the cover of the magazine because it just didn't do as well because chairs were too complicated. <laughs> People didn't want to make them. <laughs> I know. I, apparently, I love pain. <laughs> But um, chairs are one of my favorite things to do. You know, it's like like uh, uh, lots of people make dining tables, but they don't make the chairs to go around the dining table. I mean, how many yeah. right now, today, the, the trendy live-edge uh, poured resin river tables uh, with, you know, steel bases, not wood, uh, are sold without any tables to go, <laughs> I mean, how many chairs to Maybe go around Maybe benches, them. right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to try and be nice and I can only speak for myself my catalog of work and my portfolio there are no tables like that you don't have river tables like that they're no. popular people pay good money for them and, and you know what good for everybody making their living good for them not my path that's great that's great so what, you've been you know running around the show is there anything that you've seen that that stands out that uh, uh, you can mention? Sure. So, because I'm getting older and my beard is getting nice and gray, which I love it because now people take me seriously. It's amazing. Um, I, I was looking the other day, I was running through an aisle and I saw something and it was called Grabo. Oh, yeah, yeah, Grabo is great. And, and, as, a, and as a small studio guy, you know, I've got everything set up to where I can move sheet goods around and cut them by myself. But there's always that one point in time where I've got to get it in the air and on the first table. What, what he's talking about, Grabo, is a handheld vacuum lift yeah. that is battery powered. I did a review in, in my In the Shop column of it uh, 
some time ago, but it's, uh, it was actually invented by some folks that make portable power tools that are designed to go underwater to repair boats is the company that, that came up with it. And, uh, um, but it's a, a wonderful little vacuum device. I don't remember the numbers. Do you know the numbers of how much it'll lift? It depends on the substrate. In, right, in, it has, to have, it has to have a really yeah. good seal. So yeah. stuff like melamine and all, it just locks on like yeah. you wouldn't believe. You know, I, I did a huge sculptural uh, commission about a, I don't know, about a year and a half ago. It was the height of COVID, so there was no one in my, it was just me working on it. And I was, I had these eight foot long sections. They were 40 inches tall and four inches thick poplar before I started sculpting. So I was having to get in there and, you know, if I had to flip it over on one side to work on something and by the end of it, I'm at the doctor going, help, please, my back and yada, yada. And so I was walking by seeing that going, where were you two years ago? Or where was I? So that was, that jumped me pretty hard, pretty quick. Like I need these. Yeah, those are, it's a great tool. And the, the thing I like about it is, you know, you, yeah, your first inclination is it's a great lifting tool. But, you know, you can turn it upside down and stick it in a vise on your bench, and it's a vacuum table. That's and, true. And you can do, you know, you like a door, you can sand all the edges and sides by just putting the door over the okay. thing. See, you I, can, you I already can have one. route the edges, all those kinds of things. I already have a whole sysvac setup, but if you don't, that's a great way to get two for one. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I've seen guys online that have done videos with it where they've actually built fixtures to use its vacuum and just use it as a vacuum source, huh. which is so it's a battery powered vacuum source. Um, so veneering applications? Not quite to that extreme, okay. but but more work holding applications sure. that are more complex. You know, building a special fixture that will lock into the thing and then they can hold it with the fixture and yeah. stuff like that. But that's an interesting and definitely an interesting tool that um, a lot, I think a lot of people in the woodworking industry don't realize is around. Oh, and the, the tool has anchors on it too, so you can put cables on it um, and suspend it from something so you can use it you know, to winch something over to somewhere too. Um, you know, I'm sure it's, if you've got a lot of heavy duty industrial moving, like, you know, a whole, whole bunk of, of big heavy MDF that you've got to move over to your CNC machine, you know, a, a dedicated vacuum lift will do a better job. Sure. But for occasional use and also on job sites and moving things around, it could be very useful. It, to me, it falls in the category of easily overlooked and foolish to do so. <laughs> you know, I'm at a play, I have lots of nice tools and I have good machines. And it took me years in the profession to learn there's one tool that I can't come down here and replace. It's my body. Absolutely. And so a lot of times the good purchase or the, the good investment is in things that maybe aren't, you know, Look, I still get excited about tools and machines 11 years in. I, I was getting giddy over the sharpness of a router bit yesterday. I looked like a 12-year-old. But the tools that aren't maybe the sexy buy or the thing that makes me get excited sometimes are the better path for where I am at. 
because it's allowing me to preserve the tools I already have or me so that I can get up and continue to go in because I have to go in. My, my kid likes to eat food, you know. I like to Absolutely. buy boots, you know, so I'm, I'm going to need to go make money. Well, I, I, I'm of, of somewhat advanced age too, and so one of my things that is really exciting to me is yeah I'm, I'm older than you are man somewhat advanced age yeah, Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. yeah 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 i get really giddy and excited about european style work pants with built-in knee pad pockets <laughs> oh my gosh and, and they don't cost that much more than our domestic work pants but the knee pad pockets are really great. And oh. uh, um, they're, they're accessed through the pant leg uh, and they take pretty heavy duty knee pads. And because they um, are in the pants and not strapped to your legs, they don't cut off your circulation. Plus they're there, you know, and you start, <laughs> when you know that they're there, you start realizing how many times to pick something up or uh, to get a better angle on something that you hit the ground on your knees. I just learned how to sew. <laughs> that was, I'm not kidding. I got tired of sending stuff out to get patched up and I'm like, this is costly, I'm just gonna do it. But I also bought a sewing machine then wrote it off because I'm learning to do upholstery. There you go, so, there you go. I always wanna keep learning. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, give me ways I can make what I do better. Right, well, you know, I, I've been, building my house for six years now and I've gone through a number of those knee pads. <laughs> I, I feel geriatric now because I'm thinking about how much time I spend researching insoles and, and work boots that have western heels and so my back doesn't hurt and all these fun things. Yeah, I, you know, getting I, there. material handling and leverage is our friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, every shop I've ever had has been designed and built in a way that I can move large pieces through all throughout without having to lift it more than once or to get in the air one time. Every table converts to the other, either a cascading or they're yeah, the, all dead onto each other. The outfeed on one is the infeed on the next yep. one. Yeah. But it's usually sneaky stuff because I'm weird. And even though now I have this huge studio where I work, I still sometimes been the mentality of when I started just kind of bootstrapping in whatever building I could get. So I have 3,700 square feet to myself to work in. That's dreamy. And I still get stuck sometimes it, back in that first place. It was like, you know, a, a 20 by 20. Well, the problem though, when you have an embarrassment of riches of space is mm. wasting space. And, I don't waste it. And, you know, so that you're walking too far from one operation to the next. I, I knew some guys, a four, four person operation in West Virginia that were basically working out of uh, the owner's garage and the way they worked in the owner's garage was that every outfeed table of one machine was the infeed table of the next machine. All the machines were leveled exactly so that all the tables were the same height and to um, assemble and stage cabinets they had a box truck parked up at the loading dock at the you know end of the thing and so all of the the stuff went immediately out of the shop and onto the truck and then they got some uh, state financing some business development financing 
and got a new place that was, you know, 7,000 square feet. And they had all this space and they ruined it because they spread out all their machines and they realized right away, oh, we've screwed up here because we had such an efficient operation and and now it's not. And, you know, they were all excited. Oh, they, they did a lot of architectural millwork kinds of things where they, they really needed to stage stuff sure. before to make sure everything was going to work before they, they shipped it to Baltimore or wherever it was that it was going to be installed. And so they ended up, even after they plumbed electrical and, and dust and stuff, they ended up replumbing things and moving them back so that they moved some of their machinery closer together and then left a big open space that they could stage stuff in. Yeah, that's great. But the open space, you know, was there when they needed it and they didn't have to go running around all the time and right. wasting their, their steps. Yeah, I need some sandpaper. Oh, it's 50 feet away. Right. I, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. My approach is usually in my studio, it's, everything's kind of convertible, even though I have the space. Like it can easily convert, like I built a, an eight foot by eight foot, like low assembly table, mm -hmm. but it's connected with domino connectors so they can break off into two eight by four staging areas where I can do low assemblies. Oh, like, great. And, and I'm not, you know, leaning over and bending over and I'm not bending up, especially I'm doing, you know, say assembling eight chairs. You know, my setup time is limited, but it allows me to kind of maximize it, get in there and knock them out, but still know that that the joints and everything, everything's lined up nice, no wobbles. But I have a, a portable work table, work stand. I didn't make it, it was a commercial stand, but it was originally designed for uh, having a, a miter saw on it. Mm -hmm. And the, the table part of it rotates so that you could hold the saw upside down underneath and use it as a table. And so I, mounted um, in my uh, pocket hole machine on there and so it lives under the table most of the time and it only comes up when I need it and then there's also wings that can fold up on that and so I get you know extra surface area when I need it yeah. but not when I need it <laughs> yeah I'm trying to think what's what's my most inefficient thing my my danger room your danger room. Yeah, so it's awesome. Everything in my studio is hooked up dust collection. I mean, it's clean. It's right. clean as a wood shop's going to get. Because early on, I learned clean is safe. Clean is more efficient, which means better profit. And I think better in a clean space. So I usually, if I don't leave or clean before I leave every day, I start my day cleaning. And it kind of gets my body moving and kind of in a, in a groove. But... Um, there are some Toyota production system would approve. Oh, well, how about <laughs> it? Um, but there's some things in woodworking where I find it, my work is better when I just accept this is going to be a messy debacle. And so I need to create a space where that's just okay. And the rest of the studio doesn't require cleaning after said debacle. So I built about a 15 by 15, somewhere in there, um, what I call the danger room. And, and I did a acrylic like halfway up around it so that if I'm ever teaching classes on how to do power carving and sculpting, people can watch and learn without having to be in the tornado. Um, 
So it's, it's where I go if I know I'm doing a lot of template routing and it's like, I'm not changing my back bag nine times today. I'm putting on a mask and I'm going to here and knock it out. You know? There you go. So everyone calls it the danger room. The danger room. And it was, people looked at me a little weird when I started doing it and then after it was done, they're like, okay, that's kind of smart. I'm like, yeah. You should have a sign with a logo on the door. <laughs> when first you know? it had Bisqueen, everyone called it the Dexter room and I got in a lot of trouble for that one. <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's that's a great idea. I, you know, I, I think that uh, all that's one of the reasons I love this industry is is everybody comes up with these creative solutions. What frustrates me though is when I go to shop after shop and everybody is reinventing the same wheel. And, yeah. You know, I, I wish that that folks would get out of their shops and network more so they could share these kinds of ideas. I mean, that's one of the reasons why a big show like this is a really great thing because there's opportunities to network and meet other folks and learn how they do things and find out that maybe there's a better way that you can do something. That, that was the most valuable thing I ever learned in my first IWF, was sitting around with other people that do exactly what I do that I'd never met, and, and we're all professionals. and. Everyone kind of talking, like bouncing ideas off each other. Like I'm having problems with this line of work, or this style of joint, or this type of customer. <laughs> I was going to say this kind of customer. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's that's part of it. I mean, look, if you're the re if you're really a professional, there's a lot more that goes into this stuff than just like I wish my job only meant I get up and go in there and make cool stuff. I mean, some days, you know, but there's a lot of work to get to the work. And the best thing I learned that first IWF was sitting around with other guys, and it, it was like the first time I ever sat there and I was like, this is like woodworking support group. <laughs> you know, but it was so nice to get out of my own fishbowl and, and, Absolutely. And, and hear perspective of other people and learn. Yeah, I just did a, a talk of, uh, about uh, uh, things that a lot of woodworking shops don't think about in trying to be successful business shops. And, and, I, and I've always said that most people get into this because they like to make stuff, but they don't know how to make money. And, uh, um, you know, when you get in a networking situation, and networking is a powerful tool, you not only learn answers to those questions about how to improve your production, but you learn answers to the questions about the business and how to make that work. It's, it's jazz. <laughs> it's jazz. I, I love mean, it. It is. It's a lot of dancing you have to do. And, and I think client relations is a big deal. Especially if you want them to come back yeah. and buy more. I did the math. 87% of my clients have returned for another piece. That's impressive. That's impressive. I, I like that. I checked the math three times because I didn't really believe it either. The only danger with that high of a percentage, though, is if you know, 87%, almost 90% of your customers are the same customers over and over again, um, is to make sure that there's plenty of work in your pipeline to keep you busy. I know you're not having that problem no. right now, but no. uh, um, that could be for some people if you rely too much on the, the same customers over and over again, especially if one gets a wild hair that they no longer like your style or something. Well, the pool is larger than five to ten clients. Right. Um, but that took time. I mean, that's over ten years in now. Mm -hmm. I think I've been fortunate that the same clients that have been repeat clients, 
they like to tell people how much they like it. You know? Um, or yep. it's just been put in front of new right people over and over again. I've been very lucky. That's it for today. We'll have more of our interview with Matt Buell in our next episode. If you're looking for more of our prod- podcasts, you can find all of them at woodworkingnetwork.com slash podcasts and in popular podcast channels. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks again to today's sponsor, FDMC Magazine and the Woodworking Network. If you have a comment or topic you'd like us to explore, contact me at will.sampson at woodworkingnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.